This yes. is hell. All right then. Manufacturing descent since 1996. This is hell. And since the late 1990s, you and I, we have learned together from countless indigenous activists throughout the Americas that colonialism never really ended. The indigenous still live on land that has been invaded, occupied, settled, and colonized by outsiders. And that colonial nature of their existence as subjects and not citizens is a daily part of First Peoples' lives. Now, the colonization of the colonialism of Africa that began with the Berlin Conference of 1884 and 1885 when the seven European imperial powers, Britain, Belgium, France, Germany, Italy, Portugal, and Spain divvied up which power got what part of continental Africa, well, that colonialism that never ended either. Following centuries of a slave trade that created a global diaspora, that tearing apart process was exacerbated by the outcome of the Berlin Conference, even after the Second World War and what is called post-colonialism, that colonialism Never ended either, with many in the former African colonies becoming subjects again, not citizens, in governments that mirrored their former imperial predecessors. The whole process leaves a feeling of coloniality, as our guest will argue, a feeling that you, you're not a citizen but a subject without rights, living in a world occupied and dominated by others. We'll learn how imperialism and colonialism never ended for black Americans in the African diaspora when we speak in a few with historian and decolonial and post-colonial theorist Sibelo Inlovu Gacheni, who wrote the Black Citizenship Forum article, Black Citizenship and the Problem of Coloniality, which you can find at blackagendareport.com. Sabello is currently Research Professor and Director of Scholarship at the Department of Leadership and Transformation in the Principal and Vice Chancellor's Office at the University of South Africa. Sabello's latest writing includes his 2018 book, The Decolonial Mandela, Peace, Justice, and the Politics of Life. You can follow Sabello on Twitter at SJ and Lovu Gutchen. We have a direct link to it at our website as well as on Facebook and on our Twitter feeds. So you can find it there. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show podcast live stream host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Alex, how was your weekend? Did you ever get out of your house other than walking your dog? Uh, no, it was just uh, spent watching a 720p rip of the 1948 Lawrence Olivier Hamlet movie on YouTube. Well, my house gets one degree colder every day because my heater can't keep up with how cold it is. It's a creeping dread going on over at my house. So uh, somebody sent me an email this week saying that they had just heard about the radio show because we had shared an interview that we had done with Howard Zinn from 2006. And they said, I definitely have to subscribe to your YouTube channel. Alex, do we have a YouTube channel? Uh, yeah, but it's not updated enough because my version of iMovie ran out. So actually, uh, people who've been getting in touch about helping out the show, if you have a working version of iMovie, uh, I'd actually like to be uploading more interviews onto YouTube. So uh, get in touch with me, Alex, at thisishell.com. That's like on my giant pile of things I want to accomplish at some point in my life. That might be on my machine here, my other machine in the office. I don't know, though. Let me check and see if I have yeah, a copy it's a, of it. If, I, if anyone's able to help out with uh, uploading clips to YouTube, that's pretty easy. I can show you how to do it. Cool. Uh, my weekend was predictable. The impeachment trial was quickly wrapped up without senators calling any witnesses because nothing says justice like a trial absent of any witness. And President Trump was acquitted for the second time. But hey, it was done in a timely fashion to not be a distraction during the upcoming campaign season, which always starts the day... After the election. Now, instead of looking back to the past of the Trump administration, we can finally look forward to the real work of a congressional investigation in the events of the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. This weekend, I also put together my new office chair that was sent to me thanks to listener Rob. Rob, I cannot thank you enough. The chair is amazing, and if anybody out there is looking for a new office chair, I'll send you the brand name of it and the model in, a, in an email. I don't want to advertise any brand names here on the show, but it is absolutely amazing and has a lumbar support for my lower back, which has been killing me since I've been using a 100-year-old wooden antique office chair since dating back to the beginning of the pandemic. So thanks, Rob. I truly appreciate it. And speaking of Rob's, Past guest on our show, epidemiologist Rob Wallace, was on John Oliver's show last night 
basically saying exactly what he said on our show almost a year ago. In fact, the whole segment was about exactly what we were telling you the pandemic was about a year ago. So so if you saw John Oliver's show last night, you saw what we were talking about 12 months ago. More importantly than any of that, Alex, what's this week's question from hell? Uh, this week's hanger, question from hell, <laughs> not hanger here. This week's question from hell is, what's something about you that only the algorithm knows? <laughs> What's something about you that only the algorithm knows? Uh, the person with our... F- if somebody says your mom. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you can see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Without you, we got nothing. So thanks for all your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we have to have your answer by the end of Thursday's show when we are announcing this week's winner. Alex will be sharing some of your answers to this week's question from hell following our guest. Again, the question from hell is what's something about you that only the algorithm i like how v is capitalized by the way and algorithm as well what's something about you that only the algorithm knows brave enough to be streaming live dumb enough to be goofy stupid enough to think that we can be a regular part of your weekly hangover this is hell and alex has this week's hangover cure and alex i promise you this is the penultimate time that we will be using the same source for our hangover cures is it? Yes, I promise. <laughs> uh, dang, Robert B. just wrote back to us about uh, uploading shows onto YouTube. That was quick. <laughs> yeah, that was nice. Uh, this week's Hangover Cure is Bloody Tomatoes on Toast. Mm. Yes, we're still citing the early January article of The Guardian with the headline, Readers Hangover Cures, 10 Ways to Beat the Post-Booze Blues from Radiohead to Roll Mop Vinegar. Oh, congratulations, Alex. That, that was a very tough read, and you finally got it right. Well, it's the 10th time. I know, but Blues Booze is really tough. This time, they quote Kevin Brown, a land manager in Essex, who says to properly prepare bloody tomatoes on toast, you mix chopped beefsteak tomatoes, balsamic vinegar, celery salt, pepper, red pesto, Worcestershire sauce, a little sugar, rapeseed oil, a splodge of tomato ketchup, (laughs) and a pinch of chili flakes. Microwave for three minutes. Add vodka to taste if you're not driving anywhere afterwards. Pour the whole lot over buttered sourdough toast. Add a sprig of basil and more black pepper. Wolf it down and go back to bed. Brown claims it nearly always works for me. So that makes this week's hangover cure bloody tomatoes on toast. Red pesto? What color is pesto usually? Green? Green? Yeah, red's yeah, uh, so. yeah, sun-dried tomatoes. Like it's like 1997 over there. <laughs> Putting people before profits. Since 1996, this is hell. And if you want to contribute to our horrible business model of putting people before profits. You can go to thisishell.com and click on support to find all the ways to help out your friends here at completely listener-supported This Is Hell. One way you can contribute to This Is Hell is by becoming a subscriber to the This Is Hell Patreon podcast, which happens every Friday at 10 a.m. Chicago time live and then is podcast shortly after the exact same place. Patreon.com slash This Is Hell. All you have to do is go subscribe to This Is Hell on Patreon, sign up, and you'll get immediate access to over 150 Patreon podcasts. It's like an entire extra year of This Is Hell with monologues by me and classic interviews that you cannot find anywhere else but on Patreon. And on this past Friday's Patreon podcast, we shared the third interview we did with the late, great historian Howard Zinn, author of the seminal work, The People's History of the United States. If you subscribe to Patreon, you will also have access to the first two interviews we did with Howard back in September and October of 2001, immediately following the attacks of 9-11. Meanwhile, everyone likely takes something different away from each and every one of our interviews we do here on This Is Hell. And what I learned from the guests is likely not the same thing you learn. If you want to know what I got from our conversations on the show last week, on the many shows last week, everything from the wrongheadedness of the fairness doctrine to ideology is nothing more than a brand to the institutionalization of white supremacy post-Confederacy to the Koch Brothers American Legislative Exchange Council now distributing anti-protest legislation to state houses across the United States even though the remaining Koch brothers said that he was going to be changing his ways. Apparently, he's not. The only way to find out all of that is to subscribe to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. And after giving my review of last week's show, a kind of This Week in Hell, if you will, I went off on Medicare for All. As someone who is insured by Medicare... I told you I'm blind and broke, and I'm not kidding. I'm fully aware of the shortcomings of that healthcare system. Sure, it's better than nothing. But nothing? That's a pretty low bar. 
So, listener Anna heard my Medicare for All rant and wrote to us saying, Thanks, Chuck, for your strong words on Medicare for on Medicare and Medicare for All. I worked in healthcare for 30 years. I went to one Medicare for All meeting. When I stated that we all need something better than Medicare, I was told that it's a start, and we can't ask for more than that. When I press that isn't fair to the people who depend on Medicare currently and aren't getting their needs met, that we really need to do better... I was shunned for the remainder of the meeting. Sheesh. We also got this from John Kay, who writes, Hi, Chuck, just listened to your Friday commentary on Patreon, and you talked about how much Medicare sucked. So why would we want Medicare for All? This is one of the fundamental PR problems that Medicare for All has, because as written in the bills, especially the House bill, which is better than Bernie Sanders' version, Medicare for All totally improves Medicare, provides vastly expanded coverage, removes the copay, and removes the need for private gap insurance. But when some people hear Medicare, of course they think it's still currently existing Medicare. Probably should be called something else, but it's too late. It uses the Medicare structure because it operates with a little overhead and it's easy to improve. But it could easily be called Bernie Care or Chuck Care or AmeriCare. So I agree about the lack of a movement to improve Medicare and Medicaid as they stand now. There's always a lot of self-interest in these things, John Kay writes, but it's also how Bernie and other socialists and activists see things like this getting mass appeal by making them universal. And I replied to John Kay that I agreed with him, but I added, so Medicare for all doesn't, if it doesn't work out, and it has not yet, and there's no call from the same supporters for improving Medicare to more align with what is in Medicare for All. It's as if they're saying, we believe in me- improving Medicare, but only if we get it too. If we don't get it, then we'll pretend it's quality health care and the poor are being adequately served to soothe our conscience. In the end, many on the left are going to walk away with a misunderstanding about what life is like in poverty and the poor will continue to go underserved and underrepresented and un- misunderstood. John Kay's correct. This is the best way for programs like this to be allocated, and that is universally. But you know those on the right and neoliberals will tack any universal program as benefiting the wealthy who can afford health care already, so why should we be paying for theirs? And liberals will fall for it, and suddenly we're right back in the unfairness and exclusivity of means testing, which is always divisive. You want unity? Make all social programs Universal. Short of that, you're not getting unity, President Biden. But you can only hear our 2000 talk with the late, great historian Howard Zinn and my take on last week's show in a completely unscripted rant against Medicare for All by subscribing to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. Listen to our exclusive Patreon podcast every Friday, live at 10 a.m. Chicago time podcast shortly after at the same place, patreon.com slash thisishell. One last thing, and I hope this is the last time We mentioned this for a very long time. At the beginning of this year, we got a couple of requests to have Seattle City Councilwoman Shama Sawan on our show because of the great work she is doing on minimum wage and the intense opposition she is getting from Amazon and Jeff Bezos. So we asked again, should we have politicians on the show as we have a rule that is more of a guideline, and that is we do not have people from big politics or big business on the show as they seem to be the only ones with access to establishment media. And as this is not the media, this is how we do not want either on our show. When we asked you last summer, your answer was a resounding no, do not have politicians on the show. Now this year, nearly every one of you have repeated that we should not have politicians on the show. That is, except Bailey, who wrote this weekend, sure, you can have a politician on, but it has to be Huey Long. Thanks, Bailey, and we have sent an interview request, but with Huey Long being dead since 1935, we cannot find an email address. All we have is a snail mail address, and uh, we have our doubts about how engaging of a personality Huey will be in any interview in that he has been dead for over 85 years. Remember, you can email us at chuck at thisishell.com with your comments, queries, guest or topic suggestions, or anything really, and we'll likely share your thoughts on air. Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell Sanity and Talk Radio, so clearly and sadly Noam's gone insane. This is hell coming up. Colonialism never really ended and has a huge impact on the African diaspora today. 
We'll also have some of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what's something about you that only the algorithm knows? What's something about you that only the algorithm knows? And we'll tell you what's happening on this week's This Is Hell and on the Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday shows. This is not the media. This is hell. We're told colonialism is over. It's something of the past that the former colonies were kindly granted independence by their imperial powers following World War II. The colonized would no longer be mere subjects to be dominated by outsiders, but citizens with rights and represented by their fellow countrymen and women. In reality, that post-colonial decolonization was not as liberating as claimed, and around the world, the cruelty and brutality of colonialism are still being felt through a sense of Coloniality, here to help us have a better understanding of what coloniality is and what it means. Historian and decolonial postcolonial theorist Sabello in Lovu Gatcheni wrote the Black Citizenship Forum article Black Citizenship and the Problem of Coloniality, which you can find at blackagendareport.com. Welcome to This Is Hell, Sabello. Hello. Hi, hi. How are you? Good. It's, it's great to hear your voice. You're sounding very clear. Uh, Sabello is currently research professor and director of scholarship at the Department of Leadership and Transformation in the Principal and Vice Chancellor's Office at the University of South Africa. His latest writing includes his book, 2018 book, The Decolonial Mandela. Peace, Justice, and the Politics of Life. You write the issue of black citizenship is both planetary and existential. It is planetary because it affects black people wherever they are located on the globe. It is existential because it dwells at the very heart of the meaning of black existence. How is, this is a really silly question to begin with, but I think it's a good basic question to start. How is black citizenship different from other citizenships? How is it different from white citizenship? In fact, uh, <clears throat> I think uh, the starting point is, is, is to, to, to go to the, to the foundational question of the meaning of being human as, as it emerges from uh, the dawn of uh, Euro and North American modernity, whereby those with the <clears throat> uh, black skin color were actually pushed out of the human family into a subhuman category. And the, the second point being that colonialism itself was part of uh, <clears throat> part of uh, struggles over to who does the earth belong, as 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 Achille Bembe will put it. So in other words, those who were pushing the colonial agenda, they were claiming the, the planet Earth as their own home and they, they were making all others foreign to it. In other words, not part of people who are entitled to rights and, uh, and the entitlements. And therefore, those who were colonized, they were actually denied the whole uh, uh, identity of citizens and they were made into subjects. Hence, I argued that <clears throat> when we talk about black citizenship, we are really talking about an existential question an existential question of of uh, of life itself, the life of black people, and uh, you can trace that history going as far back as the time of enslavement. Why is it that it was black bodies which were targeted for enslavement? That was not an accident of history. That was by design, and that was how imperial uh, <clears throat> uh, global designs worked to make other people. Uh, subhuman so that they are targets of enslavement, targets of uh, a genocide, targets of colonialism, and the targets of being providers of cheap labor. And uh, up to now, the struggles for being human entails the struggle for citizenship at a planetary scale. That would be my, my response to your question. So I think that this is something that people don't understand, that they try to, they're in denialism, they try to convince themselves about a, a kind of a different past. You were mentioning the expulsion from the human family of black people, expelling them from the human family. I think that there's probably a lot of people who would think that's always been that way. This isn't anything that's new or any kind of new predicament that black people face around the world. How new is this concept of expelling black people from the human family? I think uh, 
if you if 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 there's people who have the mistaken identity i'm sorry the mistaken uh, perception that uh, it has always been that since time immemorial i think that would be very ahistorical uh, prior to the <clears throat> to the advent of colonial encounters uh, various people across the indigenous people in the in the americas the the indigenous people in every part of the world they were self determining and they were actually they never had this question of doubt whether they were human beings the question of doubt of other people's humanity started at a particular moment in history and that moment can be traceable to the to the dawn of from the 15th century onwards uh, and that is when you have this idea of questioning the the encounters the colonial encounters christopher columbus coming to the to the to the americas and the beginning to question whether indigenous people were actually human beings and then you begin to have this question of other people being indigenous and the others being something else so i think what is needed is for us to be historical when we approach this question because if we say it was like that uh, since time immemorial or since the time of adam and eve we will actually be mis uh, uh, missing something else about a particular civilization which emerges as europe actually emerges into a, a, a dominant power uh, for the past 500 years so if we want to overcome the brutal and cruel legacy of colonialism do we have to overcome this view of inhumanity in others and is that the biggest obstacle to overcoming colonialism or whatever state colonialism is in today and that is to overcome this view of the inhumanity in others indeed the 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 question of of uh, how to liberate <clears throat> those who have been dominated for the past 500 years is a, it's a it's a very complex struggle which needs to actually manifest itself at multiple levels of course the question of uh, of uh, being human is a central part of it because uh, the issue of colonialism how it it it, uh, it sustained itself it sustained itself by inventing whiteness and blackness whiteness as a as a as a as a, as a register of superiority and a blackness as a register of inferiority and the, the the that that has been the the central aspect of colonial governmentality if i can use that word but uh, there are other layers of it beyond the <clears throat> the question of the human the question of knowledges which were also used to sustain that power structure this idea that knowledge from europe is the only knowledge knowledge is from other parts of the world are not knowledges per se because if you deny people their humanity fundamentally we have also denied them their knowledge is because non humans don't produce knowledge as as we all know then there is a third aspect of it and they, once they've pushed other people out of the human family they also devised a governance structure a power structure to govern this 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 pyramidal system in which those with white skins are at the top echelons and the those those with the black skins are at the at the lower echelons and they each fundamentally therefore means when you do struggles for decolonization you you will need not to reduce it to only attainment of political independence because if you speak about attainment of political independence you are fundamentally dealing with the question of the physical empire and then you 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 then ignore the metaphysical empire you ignore the cognitive empire which continues beyond the existence of the physical empire so i think it is important that as we fight in the 21st century we don't repeat a limited understanding of what decolonization is and what liberation is we need really to gain a deeper understanding of it <clears throat> And you write that at the center of black citizenship is what Puerto Rican theorist Nelson Maldonado Torres, among others, has termed the coloniality of being. The phrase coloniality of being refers to the social classification of human populations according to a racial hierarchy. So is coloniality then just stark racism? And if so, what is if it's more than that, is it any more than that? Is it any anything else beyond just being racism? it's a it's a it's a very complex power structure 
if, if I can put it that way, is a power structure which is constituted by what some theories call hectarchies of power. And the hectarchies of power is talking about really the entanglements of the lines of power in what we call uh, coloniality, whereby even the concepts of beauty are actually built into it. The question of who provides labor is built into it. And then you can look at it, capitalism, colonialism, imperialism coming together to constitute it. So we speak about it in decolonial theory following the Latin American theories in terms of colonial matrices of power. And those colonial matrices of power, they have survived the dismantlement of the physical empire. And they still continue today as part of what we call global coloniality. In other words, if you look at the modern power structure today, you will see that at the top echelon is the United States with the Pentagon in alliance with the NATO. They are actually the governing the world. And that power, they gain it from the past 500 years uh, to be where they are. And they, they are then pushing all others into the, into the bottom. And they, 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 they do that by accumulation of weapons of mass destruction. If ever you try to resist and if ever you try to challenge, of course, they send uh, their forces to, to invade Iraq, to invade Libya, to kill Saddam Hussein, to kill Mema Gaddafi, to do all these other things. So it's really a very complex, fearsome structure of power, which if, you, if we don't analyze it properly, we will think we are free when we are not free. You, I want to continue on this concept of coloniality because you write, coloniality explains who counts as human while generating a racialized pyramid of modern society with those considered white occupying the top and those designated as black languishing at the bottom. The late Martinican intellectual and poet Aimé Césaire, who has been coming up on our show quite a bit lately, he uh, captured this existential problem of blackness in terms of three tormenting questions faced by black people. Who am I? Who are we? What are we in a white world? What is it about the questions, who am I and who are we, that causes so much suffering for black people? The question, what are we in a white world? I mean, that seems to be far more obvious how that would cause, cause suffering. But what is it about who am I and who are we that leads to such torment for black people? In fact, at, at the center of those three tormenting questions is really the question of sovereign subjectivity whereby the ability to say I. Uh, you remember the, the, the European philosopher uh, <clears throat> uh, René Descartes, I think therefore I am. Uh, that was actually monopolized for the people who are actually human beings, who were deemed to be human beings. And it was denied the other people who were actually subjected to enslavement, who were subjected to colonialism and who today are subjected to global coloniality. So the issue of who am I? It is actually a tormenting question in the sense that people are searching for their identities. And if you look at our brothers and sisters in the Caribbean, even their music, the reggae music is all talking about roots, back to my roots. And those roots, they were uprooted from the African continent and they taken across the Antarctic into, 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 into the Americas. And up to today, they were alienated from their roots. Those within the continent, it doesn't mean that they were then remain connected to their roots through the Christianization, conversion to Christianity, through the school system. They were also alienated from their histories, from their identities, from their cultures, from their names. That's why you find a lot of people with European names. So this question of who am I is really a searching question of what was lost and what can be gained through, 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 through decolonization. And you write how W.E.B. Du Bois posed th these queries, who am I, who are we, what are we in a white world, in another way, asking of black people in the modern white-dominated world the soul-searching question, how does it feel to be a problem? When we spoke with Marquise Bay about his collection of essays, Them Goon Rules, Fugitive Essays on Radical Black Feminism, he discussed the idea of black Americans being born into a world of what he called assumed fugitivity. He told us the institution of enslavement was 
too many divinely ordained, if one is to demonstrate a kind of agency or autonomy over their life and livelihood, then one must steal their life back. And that to me is a profound act of fugitivity, Marquis said. It's a subversion of the dominant, even divine power structure and hierarchy to steal one's life back. To what extent are black people a quote-unquote problem due to their attempts to reclaim their own lives? What is the problem black people are being blamed for or held responsible? Is the problem demonstrating a kind of agency or autonomy over their lives and livelihood? In the, in the, in the, in the African context, and I think, of course, in the Asian context, and the, almost in all the other uh, colonial contexts, one of the haunting questions for the colonial administration was how do we administer the majority of colonized people by a white minority? And that came in terms of a question which they, they, they framed as the native question, as though these people are a problem, the native question or the native problem. And the native problem in a, in a colonial ideologue's mind was how do we dominate, how do we exploit, how do we continue to, to benefit from the labor of these, these other people whom were pushed out of the human family without them resisting. And they, 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 they posed that as the native question. Uh, and they posed that as though the people who are dominated are a problem, but they created a problem for them. And then if you also look at the plantation slavery, chattel slavery, there were all these attempts, how do we make sure that within the plantations, the, those who are enslaved are actually working and they, they work for nothing, but without resisting. And they were creating all that as the problem of the enslaved people, rather than that they've created problem for these people. So this idea of being a problem also comes uh, in a third way in which you, 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 you are redefined as, as a subhuman, as somebody who is outside civilization, somebody who, who when they say native, is governed by culture and a, and a custom, and a, is not really uh, amenable to the issues of civil and the political rights. And in that way, you are then made to live in what Fanon will call the, the, the zone of non-being. In other words, the zone of non-being whereby the issues of ethics the issues of rights, the issues of entitlement are suspended. So that the only mode of interaction between those who are powerful and those who are colonized is really expropriation, is violence, is raw power being exercised on you, including using the whip itself if we look at the slave narratives. And I want to stick on this idea of a perceived problem again, because you write, colonization disrupted and displaced African communities, their indigenous knowledges and cosmologies, their forms of self-identification and the organization of their social relations, the realities of life in the pre-colonial era marked by flexible and fluid identities, pluralities, mobility as a way of life and compositionality, being human through others and with others, was swiftly replaced by colonial racial logics and liberal individualism. So are pluralities, mobility, being human through others and with others, instead of, say, things like the market or capitalism mediating our humanity, are those the problems that black people cause for capitalism? And if so, who suffers from these problems? In fact, um, uh, when I raised that argument, I was thinking about uh, on the continent of Africa prior to colonialism, what were the values which actually governed human relations? And I was saying, the people were free to, 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 to move around within the continent. People were free to change identities. Uh, the identities were fluid. They were not rigidified into black and white. Uh, uh, during that time, in the, in, the, in the Southern African region, we have a concept called Ubuntu. I am because you are. I am through others. And those were values which actually, with colonialism, they were replaced with the values of paradigm of difference, if I can use that word. A fundamental, fundamentalist difference between white and the black. And the, the second being the, the, the notion of impossibility of co-presence, 
whites here, blacks there. And they, in, in, in South Africa, where I was based for some time, that what emerged is apartheid. And, they, and they, that a, a, was actually a part and parcel of what we call global coloniality. Uh, and they, that is continuing up to now to the extent that it makes it impossible for human beings in their different colors, in their different genders, in their different religions to actually live together peacefully. Because unless we break this fundamental line, uh, which, which W.E.B. Dubois called the color line, which he said it was a problem of the 20th century, 20, 20th century, but I think it continues to be a problem even in the 21st century. And, uh, and uh, because of that, you will find that even when capitalism then kicks in, it reproduces itself on top of these other fundamentalist, funda, fundamentalist differences created by, by the colonial encounters. And it begins then to create peasants, it, to create workers, to create bourgeois, petty bourgeois, comprador bourgeois. And those are, are not ontological identities, if I can put it. Those are identities born out of a relationship with the market. Uh, and they are born out of a particular system, or economic system, which for lack of a better word, we will call racial capitalism. So I think this, 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 this needs to be understood so that people must not then embrace these identities, which are actually born out of, out of exploitative uh, forms of relations as though they are ontological identities. You write that in the African context, the modern nation state is an imposition of colonialism. Its formal origins can be traced to the Berlin Conference of 1884-1885, when the continent was infamously partitioned by seven European imperial powers, Britain, Belgium, France, Germany, Italy, Portugal, Spain. These dominated territories eventually became colonies. Can, or maybe I should be asking to what extent, can the modern nation state exist without colonialism is the reason coloniality colonization and colonialism all continue to exist because the modern nation state exists and needs that colonialism in some state to continue it's a it's a it's a broad question really about uh, uh, institution uh, uh building uh, that uh, most of the institutions which we operate with within Africa, within Asia, within Latin America, within the Caribbean, and within other spaces. They are actually impositions, and they, they are borrowed from somewhere else. You know, the Westphalian template of the nation state, how it is then uh, imposed through force of arms within, within Africa, for instance. Africa, which had plural forms of authority, prior to colonialism. Some people were actually very small communities without a state, some were kingdoms, some were matriarchal societies. And all that with under colonialism, under the hammer of colonialism, they, they, they are destroyed and what emerges is the modern state. And the modern state emerges also with the question of rigid boundaries. And I was undergo, under, underscoring the importance of the Berlin Conference because that's where the boundaries of so many of the 54 states in Africa was drawn. And they, unfortunately, when the decolonization of the 20th century uh, peaked and, 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 and unfolded, up to 1963, when the organization of African unity was, was formed, the, the question which was missed is undoing what Berlin had done. And they, it was like, they then accepted what Berlin had done. And then they tried to say, we will run with it. We will actually take over from where the colonialists left. But that has created a lot of problems. It has created a lot of conflicts within, within the continent. It has created a lot of secessionist movements within the continent. It has actually cut relatives. Others are in one state, the other ones are in, in another state. And you can't go without a passport. And the major problem, even within the continent, Africans themselves are not free to travel within the continent itself because of these, these colonial borders and these, 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 these ideas of passports. Then the, the other important aspect, which when you look at what happened in Rwanda in 1994, the issue of introduction of rigid identity cards 
which are linked to your identity, which is created by colonialism. And that then become used in times of conflict to identify who should be killed, who should be, who should be, who should be abused. And all that, I link it with the whole uh, question of colonialism. You also, when you're talking about this African petty bourgeois, isn't the production of, I'm being uh, devil's advocate here, isn't the production of an African petty bourgeois supposed to be empowering the local population? Isn't that the colonizers, the former imperial powers, helping to empower the locals so they too can experience democracy isn't the isn't the intent to give back to the people who are brutalized by colonialism the promise of self-rule and democracy or do you think that's not the intent of the former imperial powers i don't think we can read it in a, such a straightforward manner and say uh, by the creating of the bourgeois uh, they were actually trying to empower black people colonialism we had never had an intention to empower those it colonizes. The intention was actually to exploit those who were colonized. Even when they introduced the education, which actually produced the educated elite, who then form what we call the petty bourgeois. It was actually for the purposes of colonization. They wanted to minimize the cost of administration of colonies. So they wanted to teach some few people to then help in the administration of, 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 of the colonies. So there was no intent really of empowering them. Even the mission education and the colonial education, it was not for empowerment. It was actually to create clerks, to create all these colonial officials who will actually help the colonial system to run. And it is the, 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 the ironic part is only that it is these educated elite who were the first to rebel against, against colonialism and they took the, 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 the path of African nationalism and they challenged the colonial bourgeois because they want now to replace them. And the problem with the just replacement is that you then don't change the relations which they created. You don't change the, the, the forms of governance which they've created. And if you just come into that power structure which was created by colonialism and try to operate through it, there is no way it can actually empower the majority of the peasant and the workers within the African continent. So that's why you will find that the African leaders who emerged from the petty bourgeois class who, are, who became in charge of the state, they ended up being enemies of the people because one, the economy was always structured in such a way that it looks outside, it services the empire. And the, the issue of being an African, a first African leader after the departure of colonialism was how do you turn the economy to make it look inside and save the people inside? A lot of, a lot of the leaders failed to do that. Immediately you, you, you do that, the economy collapses because it was not meant for that. It was actually meant to service the empire. When you try to make it save the people, then the whole issue of, uh, of, 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 of the economy actually collapses. Then two, when you try again to the major problem is that they also try to reproduce the same logics of separating people in terms, instead of using race now, you now you use ethnicity. Instead of using race now, now you use gender or, or, or sexism to, to reproduce the same, the, same, the same logics of separating the people. That's why we talk about coloniality, whereby there is reproduction of all these inimical logics which were introduced by colonialism, even if the people in the charge of the state are now black in color. But as you know, in the West, there's no discussion of this coloniality being a problem for African nations or the African diaspora instead of mentioning that it's a whole kind of post-colonial process of colonial power still dividing and conquering, but by proxy and by locals and locals still practicing colonialism for the colonial powers, which is what it seems to be. But in the Western media, what we're told about African leadership is the problem isn't coloniality. The problem is they are either brutal or corrupt. What happens to our understanding of what is happening in African nations and to the African people and the African diaspora, when instead of seeing coloniality as the issue, we chalk it off to the brutality and corruption of African leadership. Yeah, yeah. In the first place, I think the term post-colonial 
is the one which is which is very problematic. Hence, the the the, the, the favored term being coloniality, because the 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 actual issue is that from the departure of administrative colonialism, we don't necessarily move into post-colonial. What, what we move into is whereby there were these individual colonial powers running the British, the French, you move into global coloniality, not into post-colonial. And at the same time, you can't say we then moved into post-racial. Generally, the race continues. To, to it actually mutates and it changes these markers of, 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 of differentiation, but it doesn't actually die because you have removed the, 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 the issue of direct colonialism. Then secondly, the issue of, uh, of corruption, of saying the major problem in Africa, the major problem in Asia, the major problem in Latin America, the major problem in all these places where there was a colonial uh, a rule is corruption. The question is, why is it that these human beings, uh, these human species are corrupted than other human species? What makes them really being identified with corruption? Is it not because of the sociogenesis, how they were produced by colonialism, uh, which actually makes them then uh, even their states, their states, they, 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 as I said, they look outside. And if you are in charge of it, it means you must survive by actually uh, uh, getting rents, uh, uh, the gatekeeper's state, for instance, the nature of the state itself is, is actually determined by how it was produced by colonialism to the extent that those who are in charge, they, they literally transform into bureaucratic, parasitic bourgeois who then accumulate through the state. They are not like the bourgeois in the, in the global north they are bourgeois with nothing who then uses the state to accumulate. And that's where the corruption comes in. And that in that corruption, Europe is not exempted. When the multinational companies come to invest, to say they are investing, when the so-called direct investment is coming, they are always in cohorts with these uh, native, native bourgeois. And they are always giving the, the, the monies which they then turn around and say is in order to buy uh, either, either shares in mines and, the, and, the, and, and, and all this. So the, the issue of corruption is actually at the center of the operations of capitalism in the peripheral uh, states. And there is no way you can uh, actually remove the issue of corruption from, collapse, from colonialism and capitalism because colonialism and capitalism were great corrupt systems in, in themselves. So there is nothing really which they can say now it has changed when they were actually looting the whole resources of the global south and they and they, and they putting uh, everything into the coffers in the global north that was corruption and they, and they, it was even in a grander scale than now so somebody who actually looted the whole of global south resources to make to produce the global north as a rich as 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 as, as zones of opulence and the global south as the zones of poverty cannot then stand out and say the problem is corruption. If there is corruption, then it was led from the colonial administration. You also point out the dawn of political independence did not adequately solve the issue of black citizenship, mainly because African nationalism is structured through the logics of colonialism with its exclusionary and inclusionary tendencies. So is national pride in general the outcome of a is it the outcome of colonialism? Does nationalism continue the cruelties? Does patriotism even continue the cruelties of colonialism? Here we will need to really maybe discalate from theory to praxis, because the 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 actual issue is we're talking about uh, almost sixty or or fifty years after the so-called dawn of a, of a, of a political independence, particularly in Africa and the Pepe, so Latin America even longer, for Asia even longer. Uh, and the, if you look at that record, you will find that the logics don't really change. You still have the insider-outsider uh, within the continent itself. You still have problems of xenophobia, those who think they are insiders and they're not welcoming for those whom, whom they think they are outsiders. And then you go back and say, but where does these logics come from? Then you go back to what I said is the paradigm of difference. So you will then find that 
with the coming of independence, with the coming of the these smaller in so-called independent nation states, the logics of, of, of insider outsider, they, they continue. The, the logics of uh, those who are actually considered outsiders de denied of any rights, it continues. So it's, a, it's, a, it's the logics of thinking about the nation state whereby when you are thinking about the nation state, you automatically think about the majorities and the minorities and the majorities within which the state actually crystallizes, they then monopolize what is called the rights and the entitlement, and then they deny others. And then we have all these, these problems in, uh, in the so-called post-colonial post -colonial states uh, in Africa, in Asia, in Caribbean, and, and, and the other places. And the attempt at the moment is why don't we really rethink thinking itself about the institutions, about the relationship between people and those in power, about the perhaps even decoupling nation from the state so that we speak more of a citizen state rather than a nation state. Perhaps that way, there is nobody who will think I have a, 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 a better status than other people within the so-called state. So it's, a, it's a really the issue of taking the concept of decolonization deeper into thinking about the political theory itself, the political practice itself, the political thought itself, so that we don't repeat, we don't transport a political thought and a political theory from Europe and they try to actually use it to understand and to build institutions, use that knowledge to build institutions in Africa, because it looks like it's not working well. You also write that the ways that the U.S. Black Lives Matter movement has galvanized Zimbabwean Lives Matter protests is another indication of the urgent need for a planetary struggle for decolonization. What do we miss when we see all of these protests around the world as anti-police actions and not a movement against colonization? In fact, the, the issue is that I'm, I'm actually having a positive appraisal of the Black Lives Matter movement, of the, of the, of the roads must fall movements. Uh, and uh, and uh, my, my, my positive appraisal of them is at least they are beginning to come out openly to say what we were sold to us as post-racial, post as post-colonial was a lie. The reality is that racism is still a problem. And if we have racism as a problem, because racism was a major organizing principle of colonialism, it means therefore we have not, we have not actually transcended that. And then secondly, my, 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 my positive appraisal is that even if it is provoked by the killing of George Floyd in the United States, the reaction in England, the reaction everywhere shows that people begin to be tired of the whole racist, the, the whole racist uh, a discourse across the world. Sabello, I see you have a child that you need to tend to, but I have, I'm, I'm sorry, I have one last question for you. We have been speaking with historian and decolonial postcolonial theorist Sabello Inlovu Gacheni, who wrote the Black Citizenship Forum article, Black Citizenship and the Problem of Coloniality, which you can find at blackagendareport.com. Sabello's latest writing includes his 2018 book, The Decolonial Mandela, Peace, Justice, and the Politics of Life. You can follow Sabello on Twitter at SJ Inlovu Gatshen. We have a direct link to it at our website as well as our Facebook page and on Twitter. One last question for you, Sabello. And as I promise, as we do with all of our guests, our final question is what we call the question from hell. The question we may hate to ask, you may hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. You write, while African communities had their own forms of social stratification prior to European colonialism, there was no strict class identity which would determine the nature of conflicts. Now, many see political empowerment through class identity, broader class identity, even finding international common ground with those who share class identity but may not share national or ethnic identity. If class identity is a creation of colonialism, does political empowerment through class identity continue the structure of colonialism? In fact, um in fact, the, the, the issue is that these inventions of colonialism, they naturalize and they routinize themselves. Uh, the same manner 
if you say in, in a societies like the Europa of Nigeria, there was no gender as an organizing principle, but today it is now an organizing principle. So uh, when we say it is an invention of a particular system, we don't actually say it doesn't exist. Now the issue of classes now exist, but it was not the order of social ordering prior to colonialism. So now that it is now a, a reality, you cannot then wish away class struggles, but class struggles must not actually then uh, ignore race. They are actually inextricably intertwined to the extent that this is why there is popularity of the rise of the concept of racial capitalism. Uh, that uh, where there is capitalism, there is always the racial in it. So the issue of then trying to disentangle class struggle from racial struggles, class struggle from gender struggles, I think is where they, 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 we need to think a bit deeper because they are entangled inextricably. And when we're fighting uh, against this system, which is multifaceted, we need to also understand its coordinates, uh, the gender, the sex, the class, the race, and there's so many other aspects of it. Uh, so that when you are attacking it, don't attack it from only one vantage point. Because if you attack from one vantage point, it's like cutting the hand of an octopus and they think we have killed the octopus. The octopus has multiple hands. You kill this one, it uses other hands. So that's why we, I, I, I'm, 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 I'm not really against class struggles, but I'm also saying it cannot be, all struggles cannot be reduced to that. Sabello, I cannot thank you enough for starting our week uh, with us here on our show. This has just been an amazing conversation. Your writing is brilliant, and we are going to annoy you for the rest of your life to get you to come back on our show on a regular basis. This has just been a fantastic conversation, and I cannot thank you enough. We have been speaking with historian and decolonial postcolonial theorist Sabello Nlovu Gacheni, who wrote the Black Citizenship Forum article, Black Citizenship and the Problem of Coloniality, which you can find at blackagendareport.com. Thank you so much for being on our show this week. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Live from late capitalism, where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing, this is Hal. Alex, please remind us, what is this week's question from Hal? And tell us how our listeners, our listeners, are answering so far. Uh, this week's question from Hal is, what's something about you that only the algorithm knows? What is something about you that only the algorithm knows? Uh, sort by new. John T. says, the algorithm has confused me with a dimly lit room. I need a fresh coat of paint. <laughs> Uh, there's references to the images that work on uh, the Facebook post. Don't always work on the radio, I'm finding. <laughs> Luke H. says, my password. Shane M. says that I own a boat. I don't, but I occasionally shop online for things I don't need. Algorithm tipping, culture jamming, and Farm and Fleet has the best deal on anchors. <laughs> Kelly H. says the depth of my sexual deviance. Garrett S. says what really dwells in my heart. Jacob H. says, my gender. What is something about you that only the algorithm knows? David Z. says that I'm a grievance porn addict. <laughs> Probably not the worst porn addict addiction to have there. Wow. Uh, Benjamin C. says, sometimes in the middle of the night, I go to the downstairs bathroom that my kids use and replace the two-ply toilet paper with single-ply. <laughs> uh, what is something about you that only the algorithm knows? Marianne G. says, all my ads are for antidepressants, so... And then finally, Lisa B. <laughs> says, apparently, I really need to buy new underwear. We will have more of your answers at the end of tomorrow's show. Again, the question from hell is, what's something about you that only the algorithm knows? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. That is currently available at thisishell.com when you click on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio. You can email it to either of us at chuck at thisishell.com or alex at thisishell.com. But again, we have to have your answer in by the end of Thursday's show. Thanks to all of you for checking out all of the ways you can support This Is Hell by going to our website, thisishell.com, and clicking on support. Thanks for the support we received this weekend from Daniel and Kilter. Thanks, Daniel and Kilter. Without support like yours, we have absolutely nothing. And Daniel, thank you so much for suggesting Thursday's guest who we have booked. We'll be telling you about that in a minute. 
It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, rotten history. In rotten history, February 15th, 1898, 123 years ago today, Monday, in Havana, Cuba, the battleship USS Maine was destroyed in an explosion that sent more than 260 dead U.S. sailors to the bottom of Havana Harbor. Or so the history books and government propagandists would have you believe. The Maine had been sent to Cuba in the midst of its struggle for independence from Spain, ostensibly to provide protection for U.S. citizens and property on the island. The cause of the explosion was never determined, but it came just as U.S. business interests, stymied by the disappearance of the western frontier, were urgently seeking new markets and growth opportunities and saw overseas expansion as the answer, because... Where are U.S. business interests going to make money now that the oh-so-profitable indigenous genocide is subsiding and the end of slavery happens? I mean, you got to find profit somewhere. War with Spain would provide a chance to extend U.S. influence, i.e. exploitation and profiteering, under the guise of siding with Cuban freedom fighters, and it wouldn't be the first or last time the U.S. supports freedom fighters who help U.S. businesses exploit and profit. Sensationalist U.S. newspapers seized on the destruction of the Maine, playing the story full blast and stirring up war fever by loudly insisting without proof that the ship had been sunk by a Spanish mine. Much like Dan Rather reported on 9-11 that we don't know the name of the group that's involved in the attack on the World Trade Center. All we know is the group taking responsibility has Palestinian in its title. Yeah, that happened. P uh, President uh, William McKinley was at first hesitant to pull the trigger. However, three years later, somebody else would pull the trigger and McKinley would be dead. But within weeks, the Spanish-American War was on not only in Cuba, but also across the Pacific and the Philippines. Spanish forces already unable to quell the Cuban Revolution were now Hopelessly undone by the Americans, the fighting ended just a few months later with hundreds dead on each side. Spain relinquished Cuba with the United States acquired, while the United States acquired not only the Philippines, but Guam, Puerto Rico, and Hawaii, thus definitively launching a global military and economic empire that has persisted to this day. Hey, being lied into wars of imperial aggression. It's what the United States does. Also in Rotten History on February 16th, 1938, 83 years ago tomorrow, Tuesday. And people who are Swedish in my family are now going to make fun of the way I'm pronouncing some names here. Herman Hermavara, a leftist member of the Finnish Social Democratic Party, was executed in the city of Petros Avadsk in Russia's Karelian Republic. Hermavara had served as a member of the French or Finnish parliament from 1917 to 1919, around the time of the Russian Revolution, and was caught up in the Finnish independence struggle of that time, which took advantage of the Russian turmoil, but led to a civil war in Finland between opposing forces backed by Germany and by Russia. So German-Russia proxy war over Finnish independence as the revolution royals in Russia. Got it. Caught on the Russian-backed losing side, Hermavara fled to Sweden, lived there until the Swedes kicked him out in 1930, at which time he moved to the Soviet Union, where for some years he worked quietly in the publishing industry. But in 1937, Hrnamavara became a victim of the Stalinist purges when he was arrested on trumped-up charges of espionage. So Hrnamavara fled to Sweden from the German-backed Finnish independence movement, then was kicked out of Sweden, fled to the Soviet Union, and was imprisoned. After a few months' imprisonment, Hermavara was taken out and shot to death by a firing squad, but 18 years later, after the death of Stalin, his reputation was posthumously rehabilitated by the government of Nikita Khrushchev. I guess posthumously rehabilitated is better than nothing, but I'm betting it didn't matter to the long-dead Hermavara. That's Rotten History, and this is Hell. Alex, please tell us who is on tomorrow's Tuesday show, also beginning at 10 a.m. Chicago time here at thisishell.com. Uh, Nick, Nick Bolin will be on to talk about his Drift magazine piece, The Land Was Ours, Trump, Biden, and Public Lands. I'm really looking forward to that conversation. I've always enjoyed our conversations on public land. Uh, who's on Wednesday show? Uh, Chris Gilbert and Sira Pascal Marquina will be on to talk about their new book from Monthly Review, 
Venezuela, the present as struggle, voices from the Bolivarian Revolution. And thank you for getting in contact with us about that book to give us a heads up. We really appreciate it. And Thursday, anybody? Yeah, uh, Anna Archushina will be on to talk about her uh, MIT Technology Review article, The EU is Launching a Market for Personal Data. Here's what that means for privacy. And thanks to Daniel T for suggesting that guest. And thank you for your support this week, Daniel. We really, really appreciate it. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gaptooth Radio Show podcast live stream host, Chuck Mertz, producer. This show is Alex Jerry. Thanks to our guest, Sabello and Lovu Gacheni. Thanks to Alex Jerry. Thanks to Ronaldo Magaldi for Rotten History. We told you so. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell raid. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>